Hello and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host Lizzie, and today is episode 68. Today we're diving into a terrifying story that rocked a sleepy suburban neighborhood to its core. Our focus for this episode is John List. A horrifying discovery stunned the people of the wealthy Westfield, New Jersey community on November 9, 1971. In the List home, the bodies of Helen and her three adolescent children, along with her mother-in-law Alma, were discovered brutally murdered. However, it's not simply the crime's horrible nature that makes this case so unsettling. It's the criminal himself. John List was a supposedly mild-mannered accountant who had painstakingly planned and carried out his family's murders before disappearing and leaving behind a typed letter outlining his motivations for the crime. List would manage to avoid capture and remain one of the most well-known fugitives in America for almost 20 years by hiding in plain sight. Come along as we peel back the layers of deceit, examine the mind of a murderer, and investigate the unanswered questions that continue to plague both investigators and amateur sleuths. This is the story of John List, the family man turned murderer. Few incidents in the history of true crime are as tragic as those involving family annihilators. The most unimaginable crimes are committed by these people, who frequently present to the outside world as devoted spouses and parents. The phenomenon of family annihilation is as perplexing as it is tragic. In these cases, the perpetrator typically meticulously plans their actions, often driven by a combination of financial strain, relationship conflicts, mental illness, or a desire to maintain control. The facade of normalcy often masks deep-seated resentments and simmering tensions within the household, ultimately culminating in a horrific act of violence. What compels someone to annihilate their own family remains a question that continues to baffle psychologists and criminologists. Is it a twisted form of protection, a warped sense of mercy, or an expression of ultimate power and control? The motives vary, but the devastation left in their wake is undeniable. Stories of family annihilators serve as a sobering reminder of the frailty of familial relationships and the evil that might lurk behind even the most seemingly perfect homes. From John List's painstakingly planned killings in 1971, to Chris Watts's more recent horrifying actions in 2018. But let's go back to the very beginning. On September 17, 1925, in Bay City, Michigan, John List was born. He had a strong sense of traditional discipline and duty because he was raised in a strict Lutheran home. List would join the U.S. Army the day he received his high school diploma, serving as a lab technician in World War II. He enrolled at the University of Michigan following the end of the war, where he went on to acquire a master's degree in accounting and a bachelor's degree in business administration. List would be called back to active duty in 1950, when the United States would enter the Korean War. It was then he met his future wife, Helen, at Fort Eustace in Virginia, She and her daughter Brenda resided close by. She was the widow of an officer who was killed in combat. Now Helen would tell John quickly that she fell pregnant, and John would decide that they had to tie the knot quickly. Only two months after meeting on December 1st, 1951, the pair would exchange vows. John would then introduce Helen to his mother Alma, who would never let him forget that he had married below his station. 
And shortly after their wedding, Helen would reveal to John that she was never really pregnant. John felt duped, but unable to violate his marital vows because of his religious convictions. Even though Helen wasn't pregnant before they married, she became pregnant quickly afterwards. Helen and John would go on to have three children in less than four years. The following year, John and Helen would move to California, where he was able to secure a comfortable position as an accountant with the Finance Corps. After his release from the Army, John would return with Helen to Detroit. And when Patricia Marie, their first child, was born in January 1955, John would relocate his family to Kalamazoo, where he got a job in a growing business. And it was there their second child, John Frederick, would be born. At this point in their marriage, John felt alone because Helen had lost interest in his faith and began to skip church. Helen became depressed after she became pregnant once again. Helen's first child, Brenda, was becoming increasingly distant. She was causing trouble, and at 16, she wanted to leave the home. Helen would turn to the bottle after her third child, Frederick Michael, was born in 1958. She also began to see a psychiatrist after developing a tranquilizer addiction. John was under tremendous pressure to support his family but he couldn't keep a job. Despite his careful and hardworking nature, which never compromised the quality of his work, he was frequently let go. It was difficult to pinpoint exactly what it was about John List that turned people off. Brenda, his stepdaughter, would get married and move out of their home in 1960. But it would appear as though their issues were over when he was hired as a vice president of New Jersey Bank. Breeze Knoll was a sprawling 19-room estate that was the most expensive house in the most expensive district of town, and Helen demanded that John buy it. They truly couldn't afford such a lavish home, so John had to go to his mother Alma to request a loan rather than fight with Helen. But he would lose his position at the bank less than a year later for personality conflicts. And instead of admitting defeat and telling his family what had happened, He just kept getting dressed and going to work every day. He would take a car to the train station, board, get off, and ride another train back. Eventually, he did find another job, but it paid less. And then he was fired and he found another, and another, and another. He had also started skimming money from his mother's accounts because his income was not keeping up with his needs. He was basically bankrupt by 1971. And for the pious Lutheran who considered poverty to be a sin in and of itself, this created a serious moral dilemma. But Helen had also been keeping a horrible secret for John for years, and her health was steadily declining. Soon after their relocation to New Jersey, she began to have blackouts, and her right eye's vision was failing. She had already developed a dependence on tranquilizers and was drinking excessively, Tests conducted in the winter of 1968 showed that she had gotten syphilis from her first marriage. While syphilis itself can manifest in various stages, from the initial sore to the secondary rash, her stage represented the most severe and debilitating phase of the disease. This late-stage manifestation can wreak havoc on the body, affecting multiple organs and systems with devastating consequences. Neurosyphilis, another devastating complication, occurs when the bacterium invades the central nervous system. This can result in a range of neurological symptoms, including cognitive decline, psychiatric disturbances, sensory deficits, and even paralysis. 
so John was bankrupt. His wife was suffering with severe medical issues, and he had growing children he thought were being seduced by the sinful culture of 1970s America. He came up with a plan. The murder of his mother, wife, and children was, as John List would later remark, the only choice that seemed viable to him. John's severe financial hardships and religious zeal finally reached their breaking point on that fateful morning of November 9, 1971. Then he began his killing rampage with his father's Colt 22 caliber revolver and his 9mm 1912 semi-automatic handgun. Helen, only 47 years old, his wife, was the first person shot in the back of the head. After he killed her, he dragged her into their opulent ballroom, placing her body on a sleeping bag spread out beneath their stained glass ceiling. John would then go up to his 84-year-old mother Alma's apartment, put the gun to her left temple, and pulled the trigger. He was unable to move her body, so he simply left her there on the floor. John then cleaned up the blood in the kitchen after returning downstairs. Then he began to carry out the remaining stages of his sinister scheme. He called and wrote to his boss, the teachers of his children, and other people, explaining that the family had to go take care of a sick relative in North Carolina. He then proceeded to the post office to stop their mail delivery and mail out his own letters. He would also make arrangements to end their milk and newspaper deliveries. Lastly, he made a trip to the bank to redeem his mother's $2,000 savings bond. After that, he returned home and waited for his children to come back from school. Patricia would arrive home first, and he shot her in the jaw with his 22 and put her body next to Helen's in the ballroom. Next to arrive was Fred, who was shot and placed with the others. That day, John Jr. had a soccer match following school, so John, his father, went to see his game and would give him a ride home after. But then he shot John Jr. in the back of the head once they were inside the kitchen. However, John Jr. was the only one who seemed to have struggled, or not been caught off guard, and he would be shot nine more times before his body was placed with the rest of his family in the ballroom. To better preserve the bodies, John would lower the air conditioning the following morning. In an attempt to give the impression that people were home, he switched on all of the lights in the house and turned the radio on. Then he sat down and wrote his pastor a five-page confession letter. He wrote that he saw an overwhelming amount of evil in the world, and that he felt driven to kill his family in order to save their souls from eternal damnation. He would spend the night in the mansion where his family lay dead, leaving the next morning, and he wouldn't be seen again for 18 years. After driving his car to the John F. Kennedy International Airport, he would take a bus back into the city. He then rode the train to Denver. There, he put in an application for a social security card using Robert Peter Clark as his name. He found a job as an accountant and began to live an entirely new life. Breeze Knoll, in the meantime, sat still and devoid of all life. Over the course of the weeks, one by one, the lights in the mansion burned out, leaving just the sound of the radio and classical music playing. It took a month for the neighbors, who were suspicious of something going on at the List home, to begin asking questions about the lights and the empty windows. It was Patricia's drama teacher who became concerned about her extended absence by that first week of December. He and another teacher actually went to her house to check on her, but neighbors would call the police after they noticed strangers poking their heads around the house and through the dark windows. The first officers on the scene were Charles Haller and George Zelensic. When the officers knocked and peered through the windows, they didn't see anything strange. 
They then located an unlocked window and went through. It was then they discovered a curtain in front of the ballroom. And when they pulled it back, they discovered the bodies of Helen, Patricia, Fred, and John Jr. They also found John's confession letter and the guns he had used to kill his family after searching the rest of the house. As directed by the message, they then discovered Alma's body upstairs. A national APB for John List was put out right away, and they would discover his vehicle parked at John F. Kennedy Airport, but they couldn't find any evidence of him having flown anywhere. And unfortunately, the trail will go cold. The List mansion would catch fire in August of the following year, in an incident that was largely suspected of arson. Later, it was learned that the ballroom's stained glass ceiling was actually autographed by Louis Tiffany, and therefore valued at over $100,000, more than enough to cover John List's entire debts and still have plenty of money left over. Eventually, prosecutors in Union County would ask producers of the Fox series America's Most Wanted to feature the case in 1989. They would enlist the assistance of criminal psychologist Richard Walter and forensic sculptor Frank Bender. Examining pictures of John in his mid-40s, Bender would picture how he would appear in 1989, his features aged. According to Walter's theory, John would likely continue to wear the same glasses with horn rims to give the impression that he was successful. Fox would air the episode on May 21, 1989, featuring a sculpted bust of an older John List wearing the glasses. An estimated 22 million people would see this episode according to the network. One was a woman in Richmond, Virginia, who said the bus resembled her neighbor, Robert Clark, an accountant who attended church and had horn rim glasses. Police would visit Clark's residence and have a conversation with his wife, who he had met at a social event at his church. And it was then the 18-year-old mystery would finally come to an end. On June 1st, they arrested Rob Clark, a.k.a. John List, at his workplace, and despite his initial denials, fingerprints would prove he was John List. He had lived all those years discreetly in Virginia and Denver while on the run. Defense attorneys would claim at List's 1990 trial that PTSD was the result of his time serving in the military in Korea in World War II. Psychologists would conclude that List was experiencing a midlife crisis. Nonetheless, as the prosecution made clear, this was not a justification for the deaths of five innocent people. And following nine hours of deliberation, the jury on April 11th found John List guilty of all five first-degree murder counts. He was given the maximum penalty that could have been imposed at the time, five consecutive life sentences. He would file an unsuccessful appeal, arguing that his judgment was clouded by post-traumatic stress and that his letter to his pastor should have remained confidential. In March 2002, television journalist Connie Chung conducted an interview with John List for ABC's nightly magazine program, Downtown. John was 76 at the time of the interview, and he would say to Connie that he didn't want to kill himself after he murdered his family because he believed it would keep him from entering paradise. He felt there would be no more sorrow or suffering in the afterlife, where he would be reunited with his mother, wife, and children. John didn't show any genuine regret or sorrow for taking away his children's lives. And regarding his mother's murder, he claimed to have fulfilled his father's wish that he would look after her and spare her any suffering. Bliss would spend the remainder of his life behind bars until he died in 2008 from complications from pneumonia. 
But John continues to live on because many works of fiction and nonfiction have been inspired by his terrifying crimes, which have left quite the lasting impression in true crime history. One recent work that took a lot of inspiration from List's story is the Netflix series, The Watcher. Set in an affluent suburb, The Watcher follows the lives of a seemingly perfect family whose idyllic existence is shattered when they become the target of a mysterious stalker. As the family grapples with the escalating threats and eerie surveillance, they uncover dark secrets that threaten to unravel their carefully curated facade. With parallels to the actual case of John List, The Watcher explores themes of suburban malaise, family dynamics, and the vulnerability of the human mind. Similar to List's methodical planning and execution of his own family's murders, the antagonist in The Watcher uses a similar degree of slyness and preparation to prey on the weaknesses of his victims with terrifying accuracy. While The Watcher is a work of fiction, its roots in the real-life case of John List serve as a sobering reminder of the enduring impact of his crimes. List's legacy continues to reverberate through popular culture today. And as we conclude our exploration of John List's horrifying crimes and their aftermath, we're left with a chilling reminder of the darkness that can lurk within the human soul. From the moment List's family was discovered brutally murdered in their own home, to his dramatic capture nearly two decades later, the saga of John List captivated the nation. And despite the passage of time, the legacy of John List endures through works of fiction and nonfiction alike. While his crimes may have faded from the headlines, the echoes of his deeds continue to fascinate. And that will bring us to the end of this episode. If you've enjoyed it, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of a case or criminal to cover, you can reach us on social media, on Instagram at Historical True Crime Pod or Facebook at Historical True Crime Podcast. You can also send us an email directly at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.